Ephesians 6, verse 14, continuing in our series, The Armor of God. Let's just start reading at the beginning, verse 14. Paul says this, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today with humility and wonder and awe that you, the God of the universe, did not leave us to our own devices, but you revealed yourself in your holy word. God, as we open it today, we ask that you would reveal in your word the power of Jesus Christ to your church. It's just as, as Paul explained elsewhere that Jesus, you yourself, are God's mystery. You are the mystery. Jesus Christ, in whom is contained all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, we want to fall at your feet and receive from you and glorify you and worship you and be conformed into your image and thank you that it was you who prayed. It's by your word that we are sanctified. It's by your word that we are changed. It's by your word that we are, are, are transformed. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, we pray for that deep transformation of the heart, not just our minds, not even just our behaviors, but, Lord, everything Everything from the top of our head to the soles of our feet and everything in between, we pray, would be conformed to the image of your dear and beloved Son. We pray that in that, Lord, we would develop a thirst for you. Just as we sang earlier, Lord, that, uh, that, that there would be this thirst for you. God, I thirst for you. And we ask that you would give that to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, a deep longing for the things of God. Thank you that there it is, available to us by faith. Praise your holy name. We ask that you would teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. The armor of God. Paul's explanation of the tactics that a, a, a Christian has in order to stand firm against the powers of darkness, against the oppression of evil and uh, spiritual forces of darkness. How do we stand against such things? Paul says, you have been given the armor of God in which case, in, uh, in which you are to stand against the schemes and the tactics of the enemy. And Paul now is going through piece by piece all of these elements of the armor, explaining them, giving them to us in full detail, and we spoke last week about the truth, the belt of truth wrapped around your waist and how we are to stand in that. And he moves now piece by piece. Now we're looking at righteousness like armor on your chest, or as most translations put it, the breastplate of righteousness. I want to look at this in two ways. I want to examine these words. I want to look at what righteousness is, and I want to look at what the breastplate of righteousness is. Righteousness is not generally a word we use in our day-to-day -day conversation, right? It's not a word you use when you're buying coffee at the, uh, at the coffee shop. It's not a word you generally use in business transactions. 
If at all we use it, it's usually with some negative connotations or when you hear it. We usually use it in conjunction with self-righteousness. It's that word that just is uncomfortable for us and so we tend not to use it. It has some negative baggage, at least in our culture. But in the Bible, it's a wonderful word. What is righteousness according to God? If you were to look up the word that at least Paul uses over and over and over and that he uses right here, the righteousness like armor on your chest, it means in the most simplified, uh, simplified term, it's the condition acceptable to God. There's a lot of other things. It's a, it has some rich connotations, but that's, a, that's the basic sense of it. Righteousness is the condition that is acceptable to God. So just apply righteousness for a second to anything in your life, and that's, that's gonna give you a sense of what righteousness is. What, what is righteousness in a marriage? Well, it's the condition of marriage that is acceptable before God. What is righteousness in terms of Governments and nations in the world. Well, it is uh, a, the condition in those things and in those relationships that God finds acceptable. Look at all the things happening in the world. Look at your relationships. Look at sexuality. Look at your thought life. What does righteousness look like as it touches all of those things? Well, it is those things in an acceptable condition before God. It is him looking at them and saying that is how it should be. Righteousness. God is concerned about things being right according to his standard, about things being righteous. And when Paul brings up righteousness, specifically the, the breastplate of righteousness, he's referring, he's most likely referring or alluding to this passage in Isaiah. Paul loves to borrow from Isaiah. And specifically, he's doing that here in chapter 59, verse 17. Listen to this line. This is probably where he's getting his, his verse from where Isaiah says, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And I want you to pay attention to two words, vengeance and zeal. And that's somehow coupled with righteousness and salvation. In other words, Paul, uh, Isaiah is speaking about God Who's, also, who's speaking about his anointed one. God is speaking about his anointed one, which will come, and we know this to be Jesus from what the New Testament speaks about, but Isaiah pictures God's anointed ruler actively bringing justice where there is none. If righteousness means that everything is, is the way God wants it to be, we can easily look at the world and say, okay, it's, prob it's not quite there. So there's a problem, right? Isaiah is telling us that there will come a day where Jesus, the Messiah, will come and he himself will make all things right. But this will involve zeal. It will involve vengeance. It will involve a righteous ruler bringing justice on evil and lawlessness. Righteousness is the state of being upright of being correct, of being morally acceptable, specifically to God. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, verse four, the rock, God, his work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just. A faithful God, without prejudice, he is righteous and true. Isaiah 45, verse 19, I, Yahweh, speak truthfully. I say what is right. 
Psalm 19, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Righteousness is the condition acceptable to God. It is everything being upright, being correct, even being morally acceptable to who? To God. Now this assumes an objective standard of what's right. This assumes that there's something out there beyond ourselves that is objectively right and true and correct and acceptable. Now that's kind of a confronting thought to have because a lot of people in our culture, perhaps a few people in this room would be uncomfortable with the sense that there's something right out there for everybody. You might hear this a lot. You might even believe this, that morality is is somewhat relative. You know, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me, and what's true for me isn't necessarily true for you. That is the tone and tenor of our, our culture, and perhaps you would agree with that. And because of it, we, we don't like to push any type of righteousness or morality or whatever you want to call it on other people. It's more of a privatized morality. I'll live the way that I want and you live the way that you want. And we try not to overlap into each other's lives. Morality is relative for a lot of people, perhaps for you as well. But I, want, I want you to think about the outcome of thinking that way. If it's true that there's no sense of, there's, there's no universal moral standard, it's just whatever you've made up for yourself, then none of us have a basis to call out problems in the world that we live in. If morality is just something that we invent, if it's just something that we've come up with ourselves, if it's just a privatized thought, we have no basis for calling out injustice. We have no basis for looking at someone doing something that we know to be evil and calling it out. I think most people in the world know at some level that that's just not true. Most of us in this room know evil when we see it especially in its most cruel forms. We clearly see evil. We clearly see boisterous acts of injustice. And Paul says that that's the case. You don't have to be a Christian to know that something is really bad. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that the reason that we're all able to do that is because God's law, his sense of righteousness, is written on our hearts. In other words, we all have a conscience. So we all know that there's something beyond ourselves that's, that's, that's calling the shots. We all know that there's a universal standard of what's right and wrong. But we try to escape God's claim on us. And so think about that for a second. If you refuse to follow God, but you're calling out injustices and evil all throughout the world, you're calling out wrong things, but you're refusing to be subject to God, you're plagiarizing God. You're taking certain things that he said that you think are awesome, that fit your worldview and make sense of all of the things that you see, but you're refusing other things that he said. You're, you're plagiarizing God. You're borrowing his ideas to make sense of your world, but you're very inconsistent. You're not subjecting yourself to his righteousness except for when it's happening around you at your expense. 
Righteousness is the state of being upright, correct, acceptable to God. But if we are to be consistent, it should affect everything, including ourselves. Now, if that's righteousness, what's the breastplate of righteousness? Why does Paul say, okay, put the, wear this on yourself, Christian? Remember that this is a, when Paul speaks about the armor of God, he's speaking metaphorically. He's using a powerful metaphor. That's why he says, wear this like a breastplate of righteousness, like a belt of uh, truth, like a belt around your waist. We spoke about this last week, but a, a way to think about the armor, every piece of the armor is by asking yourself, what is it teaching us to believe and what is it telling us to obey? Let's just start with the, the last one. Something to obey. Isaiah tells us that in that verse that we read in Isaiah 59, that the anointed one will come one day and he will take everything and he will subject it to himself and he will make righteousness happen. He will bring justice to the oppressed. He will bring righteousness where there is none. He will spread light to the darkness. And he is the one who is clothed in righteousness. So when Paul uses that same imagery to people who are following Christ, he's essentially saying, hey, I want you to align yourself with righteousness. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make all of, this, all of this possible. He's gonna bring righteousness to the world, but you in this present time are to walk in alignment with, with, what, with what is good and what is true and what is right. You are to walk in alignment with what God says is righteous. So we could say righteousness is something that Christians are to live by. We live in alignment with righteousness. We are, in a sense, to be morally upright. Our lives are to be marked by holiness. When someone outside of the church looks inside of the church, they should see, and I'm not talking about self-righteousness, I'm not talking about smug attitudes, I'm not talking about uh, judgmental uh, views of everybody else, but people should be able to look in on the church and see people who actually live according to what they believe. That if union with Christ is true, that Christ dwells within you and dwells within me and we dwell with the Lord, they should see Christ in all of his characteristics. When they see you, they should see Jesus. Our lives should be marked by the way Jesus lived and what he stood for and what he believed was most important. Now that is a problem, right? And that stirs up a bit of a problem. And the problem isn't with God being righteous or even God calling us to be righteous. The problem is in us. That we are unrighteous because of our sin apart from God. And we see this Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Paul would say later in Romans chapter three, verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. Now, if we are unrighteous because of our sin, that means we're also distant from God because the two just don't mix. Now, some of you have been experiencing that tension in the one-year Bible, right? Talked about this last week, you're going through Leviticus, and it was such a shock to go from 
the, the, the themes of Genesis, the creation of the universe, and the, the redemptive story of Exodus to the opening chapters of Leviticus, which was what? Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. That's a big turnoff for a lot of people, opening up the book of Leviticus. But you know why it's so tense? It's answering the problem. It's answering the question that was kind of just left there by the book of Exodus. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people as he does? Open up Leviticus and you see how. Paul said in Romans chapter six that the wages of sin is death. We experienced some of that tension going through Leviticus with sacrifices of animals, but it gets even worse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse three through four, we're told that in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of our sins every year. Speaking about the Old Testament believers. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's so brutal to look at. It's so hard for a contemporary mind to look at animal sacrifices and be okay with that. But you know what it's saying to us? It's saying that even though you might think lightly of your own sin, It is causing the death and decay of everything around you as symbolized by these sacrifices. Sin is a big deal before God. Sin is what's behind all the decay in the world around us, either directly or indirectly. It is the cause of broken relationships. It's the cause of broken marriages. It's the cause of injustices. It's the cause of corruption. Everything is due to humanity saying, I don't want a piece of God. I want to run my own life and do things my own way. Sin. And even in the Old Testament sacrifices, we're told that's just a reminder of your sin. But it's impossible for your sin to be dealt with by anything, any of these things. And brothers and sisters, that's the, that's the reason why the gospel is so beautiful. Because in the Old Testament, we get an indictment of our lack of righteousness. But in the New Testament, we get the gospel of a better righteousness given to us. Paul said in Romans chapter three, verse 21, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed to you. Meaning you didn't have enough, you didn't have enough in your own account. But God chose to reveal his own and credits uh, credits it to you. So when we look at Ephesians chapter six, verse 14, and Paul says, wear righteousness like a breastplate. He's mainly speaking about a lived righteousness. That the way that you are to stand firm in this life is by aligning your life with what God says is right. But he's also assuming that that righteousness had to be given to you first. That you have absolutely none to your ability. You have absolutely none to your account. It was an alien righteousness that had to be given to you from on high. That's why the breastplate of righteousness is not just something that we obey. It's also and primarily something that you have to believe first and forever. 
Righteousness is something that is first given to you and received by faith. You may say, well, I don't need righteousness. I'm just visiting. I'm not really a Christian or I don't think I am. And you guys talk about righteousness a lot and you, you need it. That's okay for you, but I'm actually fine. I don't feel any void in my life. I don't need any sense of this righteousness that you, you, you guys need. Perhaps the, the lingo is a little foreign to you and you don't have any sense that, that you particularly need it. You would say to each person his own. That's, that's what does it for you. I've got my own thing. Exactly. We've all got our own thing. And for you, perhaps it's your work or your income or your relationships or your social connections. Perhaps it's your family. Perhaps it's your sense of security that everything up until this point is going okay. But what would happen to you if the thing that you prized and treasured the most in this life was taken from you overnight? Think if we were honest with ourselves, those things that are the most important to us, if they were robbed from us overnight, we would be devastated. Think about why. It's because we have set certain things up in our lives that are there because they justify our reason for existing. We do have a sense and a longing for righteousness. The difference is we're trying to be right before ourselves. So for some of you, it might be your job. You work hard at your job. You're striving for promotion because your identity is wrapped up in it. And it is the very thing that is making you feel like a better person. It's your justification for being here. It is your justification for being alive. It's your justification for living in Santa Barbara. For some of you, it's relationships. If that was taken from you today, you don't know who you would be because that person, that relationship is what makes you who you are. That justifies your reason for getting up in the morning. And the list goes on. Just empty space, plug in whatever it is for you. All of us are at some level trying to justify ourselves all the time. The Bible doesn't say that's necessarily wrong. It just says it's necessarily misplaced. The Apostle Paul says, you'll never find satisfaction in any of those things. They're not inherently bad, but they're not going to make you feel. They're not going to bring you to that point where you say, now my life matters. They're never going to satisfy that deep longing in your heart. They're never going to bring you to a place where you're like, okay, I guess I've, I've achieved the Word of God declares that the only way you will ever be able to experience that depth of meaning in your life is when you put on an alien righteousness clothed in Jesus Christ himself. In fact, in that verse I just read, I'll just read the rest. Paul says, now apart from the law, meaning apart from you trying to make something of your own life, you trying to do the right thing, apart from that, God's Righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith 
in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to this. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. That means for the Christian, the only way our life makes sense, the only way that we can satisfy that longing, the only way that we can uh, experience real fulfillment, the only way that we can deal with the brokenness that we, we encounter, the only way that we can make sense of the world around us is by union with Jesus Christ. It's by him making his home in our heart, by us being born again, by us being in him, and by us being conformed to his image, Romans 8, 29. That that is God's goal in you being with Christ, is that you would be conformed over and over and over into the image of his dear beloved son. So what is the breastplate of righteousness? It is you being conformed to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By his great power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it it is us growing in righteousness. And you say, well, I thought the armor of God was there for us to stand against the devil's schemes. Oh, you know how it does that? Ephesians chapter four, verse 27 says something like this. Do not let let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity. Satan feeds on those compartmentalized places that you let him uh, be the squatter that he is. Union with Christ does not mean, Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but I'm keeping these other 712 things. It doesn't mean you can have me on Sunday morning when I'm with everybody else that you can have on Sunday morning. But on Monday, I'm gonna do my own thing. It doesn't mean, Jesus, you can have some of my finances, but not my sexuality. It doesn't mean, Jesus, you can have my sexuality, but none of my relationships. It doesn't mean, Jesus, you can have this part, but not that part. Union with Christ is an invasion of your personal space. It is an invasion of your private morality. It is an invasion of everything that you have ever known. Following Christ is free and costly at the same time. So when we compartmentalize and we keep a place for ourselves, we are essentially opening that place up for squatters. Does it still belong to you and, uh, by the authority of Christ? Of course. In the same way that if you bought a house in New York and never visited it and let it run into decay, squatters would enter it. Is it their right to do so? No. Will they do it? Yes. Satan is a squatter. He'll take any piece of property you let him use. So the breastplate of righteousness is you saying, I am allowing Christ to be Lord over every part of my life. That there is no neutral gray area. There's no floating piece of my life that is just there for anyone to grab onto. Satan can't have any part of my life because Jesus occupies every part of my life. And so to leave off the breastplate of righteousness by entertaining sin 
by compartmentalizing some parts of your life, not letting them be subject to, uh, subject to Jesus Christ, by entertaining sin, by doing things your own way, by uh, walking in things that you know are not the will of God, by ignoring uh, the will of God, by harboring certain things that you know are not right. Paul gave just one example, anger that turns into unforgiveness, that turns into bitterness, things of that nature. To leave off the breastplate of righteousness is not only to leave yourself vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, but it's to scorn and trample underfoot the grace by which you have been saved. There's a deceptive lie in our culture among Christians that says that, that dictates that we are saved by grace and because we're forgiven of our sins, we can kind of do whatever we want because, well, your sins will be forgiven the next day. The uh, late German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, used to call that cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor uh, who lived and ministered during the height of Hitler's rise to power. And there was a point in his life where he left Germany I believe to uh, Great Britain to minister there from afar. And he had grown convicted in his heart from leaving his native country. And he left Britain again, went back into the heart of Germany at the height of Hitler's rise to power, knowing that it would probably cost his life. Why did he go? He knew that all of the things that he believed were compelling him to do something about it. At that time, his big thing was uh, this indictment against the, the church leaders in Germany at that time who uh, looked with a blind eye at all the uh, evils and atrocities and injustices that were going on right before them, and he was calling them to obey the word of the Lord, calling them to obey, calling them to call out injustice and call for righteousness, calling them to live according to what they believed. And in one of his books that he wrote, one of the, uh, Cost of, the Cost of Discipleship, one of his opening chapters was that crazy indictment against that fake facade, that facade. That grace excuses our sins so that we can continue to entertain it. I want to read you this passage. It's uh, pretty long, but track with me. Bonhoeffer says, says this. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes them to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It's a gift which must be asked for. It's the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God must not be cheap for us. Brothers and sisters, do not be fooled by cheap grace. Those of you who believed in Christ, you are saved by grace, not of your own works, but by, gra- uh, by grace through faith in Christ. But don't be fooled by the cheap version. Grace is not a license to keep sinning. Grace is a motivation to turn from sin because you love Jesus more than your sin. This is exactly what the apostle Peter was attempting to explain. This is what grace does to you. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Brothers and sisters, the breastplate of righteousness is given to you and I by faith in Christ. We're something we never had before. An alien righteousness, not of our own, that was wrapped up in Christ, was given to us to wear. But we, brothers and sisters, are called to wear it in our adoration for Jesus Christ. That means we are to be set apart for the, for the, for the glory of God. That means we are to look different than the rest of the world. That means our lives are to be radically changed. That means the world is supposed to look on the inside of the church and see a counterculture, one that loves them desperately but looks very mysteriously different. Not so that we can be pious and uptight. Not so that we can be religious bureaucrats and snobby uh, Pharisees. But so people can see that union with Christ is the most important thing in our life, not just religious rote practice, so that the world can see on the inside that there's a group of people that believe that Jesus rose from the dead and it actually changed them. And most importantly, so that we can know and sense and believe and walk in the power of God and not just a bunch of rituals to fill our time on Sunday morning. And I know you believe that. I know you believe that this is true. What Paul seems to be saying right now is that Satan's tactics are going to involve him coming against you to derail you from the things that you know to be true. One of those is gonna be that you are acceptable before God because of a righteousness not your own. Satan will tell some of you that you don't deserve it, that you're not worthy enough, that you shouldn't even be gathered together with the rest of the saints on a Sunday morning, that you should just give up right now. That's a lie from hell. Satan will tell some of you that you need to try harder because you didn't do well enough last week that somehow there's something missing from your life that you need to do in order to find acceptance before God. 
that is a dirty lie from hell. Satan will tell some of you that you are dirty, that you are worthless, that you have messed up so bad in the past, so bad yesterday, so bad today, that you are not like the rest of the people in the building. That is a lie from hell. The Bible says that you are made just and accepted and holy because of what Christ has done for you. You are no longer a sinner by identity. Though we will make mistakes and we will sin. You are by nature now a saint. A brother and sister in Christ. A son and a daughter of the living God. And that brothers and sisters, is what should compel and motivate you and I to want to live differently. We recognize that in our past lives, we were entangled by everything that the world had to offer, and when the light went on by the power of the Holy Spirit, we saw that we were settling for something less. When you begin to see that truth and walk into it, not by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but by desperate prayer and longing for the power of the Holy Spirit to show himself on your behalf, you have put on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, keep it on, man. Because you're gonna withstand a battle, but you will stand, not by yourself, but by everything that God has revealed and provided for you. Stand therefore truth like a belt around your waist and righteousness like armor around your chest. Some of you have been getting beat up this week for that very reason. Perhaps you just haven't been wearing your clothes. I guess what I just wanted to say this morning was put your clothes back on. The breastplate protects your heart. It protects all the vital organs. And the Bible tells us not to be stupid, not to be unaware of the enemy's schemes. He's gonna go for your vital organs. He's gonna go for your heart. And the way he's gonna do it is make you doubt your standing before God. Don't let him do it. Your righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. If that is what you understand after this morning, that is all you need. Let that fuel your fire as you go out into the city this afternoon. For this moment, let's just sit in that place. Let's just sing his praises and remind ourselves that we are loved by our creator and he did not leave us to our own devices. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Ask today that as we sing and as we kneel and as we take of the bread and of the cup and as we pray, ask for the, the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit to be here to reveal what we need to know. Many of us in this building have been fighting a battle with ourselves with no armor. And I'm praying, God, that we would be clothed in your righteousness today. That as Paul would say, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. 
I pray for my friends and family here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who have been through that battle this week, Lord, that you would pick up their arms today and that you would show them that all of their sufficiency, that all of their power, everything that they need pertaining to life and godliness is wrapped up in the power and the person of Jesus Christ. So all we need today is Jesus Christ. All we need more is more of you, Lord. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make Christ Jesus central today, that you would put his righteousness on display, that you would put his holiness on display, that you would put the love of the Father on display, that we no longer as scared children would now run as confident children into the arms of our Father to receive help in time of need. Thank you that you're just waiting to do it. So we ask for a burst of faith, knowing that what you said is true, We pray that we would believe it, we would appropriate it, that our lives would be changed for your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of the city of Santa Barbara. May it be done according to your will, in Jesus' name, amen.